Thanks, Mark. Good morning. All right, today we're going to complete our study on how to cultivate uh, spiritual fruit in our lives. So you can turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, and we'll look at these last five uh, of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. We looked at the first four last week, love, joy, peace, and patience, and um We saw that much of our motivation and understanding of these things comes from how God is with us, how He is loving to us, how He's joyful in all circumstances, how He is patient with us, and uh, and um, and how He is peaceful. and And so the same thing is going to be true today when we look at these last five: kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All right, so let's uh, pray and uh, ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Lord, we pray for Your grace as we look into Your Word. Help us to understand more clearly what our responsibility is in our Christian life and what uh, Your role is in in creating and producing these fruit. Lord, we pray for uh, Diana this morning, Ken's daughter. She's going to be having surgery. And uh, also for uh, Ken's granddaughter, uh, we just pray that you would uh, take care of her during the this uh, recent uh, delivery and birth. We pray that you would just um, work through the doctors and and uh, Lord, we pray for Anna and Gabe that you would uh, bring salvation to them, help them to understand the truth of your word and to and to respond to it. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. I was going to mention before we prayed that uh, Ken's daughter Anna. Uh, Gave birth to a daughter. So, do you remember the name, Mike? No. No. I didn't write it down. So she was born a little bit early, four pounds, fifteen ounces. But um, she's having a few complications. She had to get a blood transfusion this morning. Mike was telling me. So uh, Ken's there at the hospital with with her, and also Diana's having surgery this morning. All right. So Galatians five twenty two and twenty three. Would someone read those verses for us? All right, so we're going to start this morning with kindness, and we're going to use the same uh, format that we did last week. We're going to see what each of these fruit is not, and then what it is, and then how do we cultivate it in our life. So, first of all, biblical kindness, what it is not. Biblical kindness is not being nice to someone or helpful towards someone for the purpose of our own means that is to to get to our own ends we can treat other people with kindness in order to manipulate them um there is uh there is something that we often do that maybe we don't even know and it is fishing for compliments where we tend to compliment people in order that they recognize the same thing in us and compliment us back or we say something about what we've done in order for them to say, "Wow, what a great person you are! What a what a what a great thing you've done!" Okay, maybe it would play out like this. 
Paul, your hair looks really nice today. And then, see the. <laughs> and so it's supposed to turn. It's supposed to reciprocate with an act of kindness, but. But um. Doesn't always work. There are many biblical examples of this false, false kindness, and the first one that comes to mind is the story of Jacob when he kindly, quote unquote gave some stew to Esau. Here you go, brother, this is this is for you. Uh or uh, yeah, in in order to uh, get his brother's birthright, what a what a kind thing to do, what a kind-hearted thing to do. Not at all. Jacob had some other his own ends in mind, right? He wanted to accomplish something. He was he was manipulating his brother in order to get what he wanted. So it really wasn't an act of kindness. Satan is another good example of of acting with false kindness when he tempted Jesus and said, I'd love to give you the whole world. I'd love to give you all the kingdom. It, it could be yours. People would bow down to you now. And of course, he had something else in mind. He wanted Jesus to fail. He wanted him to sin. And so there are false acts of kindness. And so kindness is not simply being nice or doing something nice to someone uh, because that can always be done. That can often be done with wrong motives. Instead, biblical kindness is extending benevolence to those who are not loving in return. Or we could say not necessarily loving in return because we can extend acts of kindness to people who are loving in return. So, but, but, um, Extending benevolence to those who are not necessarily loving in return. The word kindness is not used very often in the New Testament, but but the uh, the Greek root has the idea of benevolence or usefulness, and so it is the idea of selflessness. It's not thinking about ourselves and what we can get in return for our act of kindness. It is considering what what will be done for the other person, the needs of the other person. And one clear example of that is the Good Samaritan, where Jesus tells of a man who had been attacked and robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And uh, before the Samaritan came by, a priest and a Levite showed an incredible lack of kindness by just walking by, ignoring the obvious needs there. But then the Samaritan, on the other hand, was moved by compassion and he actually did something for the injured man. He acted. He he did something that cost him something and he didn't get anything returned for it. This is a true act of kindness that pleases God and this is what ought to be cultivated in us. This is what the Spirit is cultivating in us. And um, ultimately, we get our motivation from God who is perfectly kind. God was kind to us. Listen to Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the kindness and love of God, uh, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things which we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. See, God acted in kindness toward us by sending Christ. And what did He get in return? He lost fellowship with the One whom He loved most. And and uh, was willing to to give him in death for our sake. So how do we cultivate kindness? 
Um, in order to cultivate kindness, we must be humble. A proud person considers others as less valuable than themselves. And so they're not going to act in kindness towards their, that person. They're not going to stoop in selfless service for another person. A proud person in no way resembles Jesus, who, in Philippians 2, were told, humbled himself and became obedient to death because he considered others as more important than himself. And so, in order to be kind, we must be humble. In order to be kind, we must avoid spiritual individualism. We must avoid spiritual individualism. It's true that Christ saves us individually. He doesn't save us as a group. That is, okay, all of you, you, you you're, you're accepted by me. He saves us one at a time, right? But He doesn't save us to be alone. He, he saves us to be a part of something and to work together within a body. And 1 Corinthians 12, 24, and 25 talk about the, the various members of the body and how they uh, we tend to give honor towards one part or the other, but really they're all necessary for the work of the body. And so we are saved to be a part of a, of a larger community. There are no Christian loners. We, we've been gifted as individuals to show acts of kindness. We can't really show acts of kindness to ourselves. It's actually giving of ourselves to someone else. And so to, to cultivate the fruit of kindness, we need to be humble and we need to avoid spiritual individualism. All right. Next is goodness. Goodness. What is goodness? Let's start with what it is not, actually. A goodness is not merely appearing good. Goodness for appearance sake while we are harboring evil. Uh, biblical goodness is not hypocritical. Would someone read Isaiah 1, 13 and 14? Raise your hand. Anyone? Trish? Isaiah 1, 13 and 14. You want to see this kind of the, the wrong way to show goodness. This is an unbiblical way to show goodness. Verse 14. All right, here's God to Judah saying, All these festivals that you do, and, and Judah, by the way, could say, Wait a second, you're the one who told us to do these. God says, I'm sick of them. I'm tired of all of these works that you're doing, these acts of goodness that you're doing, because they're all done in unfaithfulness. They're done with hearts that that are hypocritical. They're done with hearts that are seeking their own good, not the good of me, God is saying. In the New Testament, we have the example of Ananias and Sapphira who sold some property and kept a portion of the proceeds for themselves, and yet they told the church that they were giving it all, that they had given it all. And Peter later says that you've lied to the Holy Spirit of God, and this day your life will be required of you. So, God openly hates false goodness. 
God openly hates those who play the game. So we need to think about this with regard to ourselves. Are we susceptible to acts of false goodness? Do we choose what ministries to be a part of in order to, to uh, you know, based on how public they are, how much recognition we will get? When we evangelize, do we do our hearts? Um, veer towards considering how such act activities are going to build our spiritual resume so that we can say something in church. We can make a, an announcement about what we've done. Do we look down on other people who spend less time than us in their devotional time? Because, hey, I spend a lot more time in my devotions. I'm a better person. And if so, then we need to repent of those things. God knows those acts of external goodness he knows the internal heart behind them. So what is biblical goodness? It's talked about here in Galatians 5. Biblical goodness is the pursuit of moral beauty in one's desires and actions that is pleasing to God. The pursuit of moral beauty in our desire and our desires and actions that are pleasing to God. The pursuit of moral beauty in one's desires and action that is pleasing to God. God is um, God is very concerned about our acts of goodness. Listen to Tom Schreiner. He's a he's a, a scholar who writes commentaries. He he says this about goodness: Those who have the spirit of God are strengthened to live lives of moral beauty, and their decency shines forth in a world blighted by evil. There's two ideas of the biblical word good or goodness. And the first idea is faultless, and the second idea is outgoing. The first idea can be seen in the life of Daniel, that he was faultless. There's no indication that, that he did anything that was either of neglect or corrupt. That's what Daniel 6, 4 says. When they examined him, all the administrators and so on, they found no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And yet, Daniel was a hard worker, and and he he showed this um, this great character of faultlessness or blamelessness. And so, in that sense, he was faultless in the sense that he was pleasing to God. Now, that doesn't mean he was perfect. Just like Job, we hear, "Have have you thought of my servant Job?" God says to Satan, who is a blameless man. Not that he's perfect. It's just that that he trusts in me. This is the type of idea that, that God is, I think, thinking about when he's talking about goodness here in Galatians 5. But goodness also has the, the idea of being outgoing. Outgoing, not just, that doesn't mean that you have a bubbly personality and that, you know, you're an extrovert or something like that. But rather, one that is outgoing in the sense that you do good. You act, It actually results in action. It It results in doing good. It's not something that's just kept for myself it's it's actually working out for the sake of others in Luke 6:35 Jesus said love your enemies do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back and then your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked there we have the idea of both kindness and goodness do good to them do an outward act of goodness that helps someone else and then at the end, it's talking about being kind to someone who is wicked or ungrateful. 
And that's what we were talking about before, that kindness tends to show benevolence to someone who, who's not going to show love in return. So how do we cultivate goodness? How do we cultivate goodness? Can someone uh, look up Romans 15:14 while I introduce this? Greg, thank you. One, ex- uh, one excellent way to cultivate goodness is to stir up your affections for what is good, what is true, what is just, what is beautiful, what is, what is good. And uh, a great way to do this is just to meditate on the Scriptures. And I think the best way to meditate on the Scriptures is to memorize Scripture. If we just take time to, to think over and over again about the same verse, the same passage of Scripture, that, that will be helpful for our meditation. It will help us to hide God's Word in our heart. It will help us to mull over some of these things. So in order to cultivate goodness, we need to stir up affections of goodness, of, of what is good. Another excellent way to do that is to be willing to accept and to give out uh, reproof. Are we a person, am I a person who is willing to accept reproof? You know, as as um, people who have uh, deceptive hearts, we often don't see our own sin. We're often blinded to our own sin. Even as Christians and as proud sinners, we, we generally don't like having our sin pointed out to us, but if we truly desire to grow in goodness, then we must be willing to to accept reproof and and I think to give it as well in a loving way. Greg, would you read Romans fifteen fourteen? All right. So Paul says here that you are mature because you're able to you are competent in knowledge and you're competent to instruct one another. You're able to give reproof to one another and you're also able, I think implied of that, is to accept reproof from others. And so those who are, are good are going to be willing to do that. Believers in Jesus Christ ought to be able to uh, and willing to speak to one another about the sin that is in their lives. And Paul doesn't just talk about doing that and saying, you know, you Christians and in Rome need to do this, but he actually did it himself in a place where it was not easy, like with Peter in Galatians. When when Peter was starting to side with the Judaizers, Paul called him out. He rebuked him sharply and said, Peter, this is not this is not the truth of the gospel. You need to get back in line. And uh certainly Paul and Peter were good friends and 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 that would have been hard on both ends of it, but but we see the rest of the story that both Paul and Peter turned out to be more mature Christians as a result of it. Peter didn't turn and give away the faith or give up on the faith. He actually uh, became a great leader in the church, kind of uh, took the reins from Paul and, and did great things for God. Um, all right, so so kindness and goodness. Any questions on... On those, any comments? All right, let's move on to faithfulness. Faithfulness, what it is not. Well, it is not unfaithfulness. So what is unfaithfulness? Unfaithfulness it can be simply defined as disobedience toward God. We talked about this on Wednesday in a positive way that we said we 
All we need to do is trust God. Judah was really bad at that during the time of Isaiah. They were bad at trusting God. They were trusting in all the nations. They were trusting in themselves, but they weren't willing to trust God. And, and at the end, we came down to the idea that we need to trust God. Um, and the way that we do that is simply by obeying God, recognizing that His promises are true and and obeying Him. And so the opposite of that is unfaithfulness or disobedience to God. Listen to 1 Chronicles 10.13. Saul, King Saul, died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord. So here's, here's a clear definition of what unfaithfulness is. He died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. And then here's an appositional phrase. He did not keep the word of the Lord. You could just put in the words, in other words, he did not keep the word of the Lord. He didn't obey God, and that's what unfaithfulness is. Open disobedience is a lack of faithfulness. It's a lack of of obedience. It's half-hearted obedience. And God has no place for that. Very similar to what similarly to what Trish read earlier, Malachi 1 says, "When you bring your blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong when you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals? Is that not wrong? Try offering those to your governor. Is he going to be pleased with those? Would he accept you?" says the Lord Almighty, and the obvious answer is Absolutely not. We would never give those to our governor. And so how would such unfaithfulness unfaithfulness show itself in our lives? How does it show up in our lives? How do we show unfaithfulness in our lives? We can see it in Israel. You can see it in many of the characters of the Scriptures, but how does it show up in ours? What about when we put off a project that work or paper at school and then scramble the night before and turn in something that's just ridiculous, not worth the paper that it's written on. How about how about a parent who sometimes sometimes chooses not to discipline his child because it doesn't seem to have any effect or because he is too tired? And uh, certainly that is is very easy to do. That's unfaithfulness. Or the church member who who smiles and waves at everyone on Sunday but never really takes time to get to know anyone. Never takes time to to show care for anyone. I would suggest that that, that is disobeying the the uh, commands that are there in Hebrews to provoke one another to love and good works. So that would be unfaithfulness. Those would be ways that they show up in our lives. What is faithfulness? Faithfulness is loyalty and dependability. Loyalty and dependability. It causes a person to be able to count on us to fulfill our responsibilities. It causes God to be able to count on us in order to fulfill our responsibilities. That is faithfulness. And that is God. He is loyal and dependable, and we can count on Him to fulfill His responsibilities. That is what we need to be like. It's a determination to, in our lives as Christians, to persevere in following God's Word, to persevere in obedience, to be a person of our Word. Bill, Bill was just telling me about a, uh, an example at his work of a person who was not good to his Word, called himself a Christian. And, 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 and we of all people, as Christians, ought to be true to our Word. We ought to let our yes be yes and our no, no. And this definition of faithfulness finds its perfect example in Jesus who 
believed every word of his father and trusted it and obeyed it and was um, responsible to carry out his obligations. And we are called to the same faithfulness because the God in whose image we are made is himself perfectly faithful. Listen to Psalm 89.2. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you established your faithfulness in heaven itself. God's faithfulness is perfect faithfulness. He always keeps His promise. He always fulfills what He has said He will do. And this is the true type of faithfulness that we are called to exhibit. So how do we do this? Would someone turn to... uh, Let me have two people look up verses. Raise your hand if you can help me. Uh, Bill, Psalm 119.30. Psalm 119.30. And then Paul, Matthew 24, 45 and 50. Uh, and 46, 45 and 46. Okay, so the first way that we cultivate faithfulness is to meditate on the Scriptures. You and I cannot be faithful to God if we don't know what He calls us to be and we don't know what He calls us to do. So we can't be faithful to God without knowing His Word. Listen to the connection in this verse that Bill's going to read. Okay, so I've chosen the way of truth. His judgments we've laid before us. That is, we've set our hearts on His truth, on His judgments. It's just another word for God's Word, His laws. So as we reflect on God's laws, then we are faithful. We can't be faithful to something that we don't know. We don't know what God wants from us if He doesn't know what He wants us to be, if we don't know what He wants us to do, we can't be faithful to Him. And so we need to meditate on Scripture and it reminds us to be faithful to God. Secondly, we need to consider the connection between our personal faithfulness and the attractiveness of the Gospel to unbelievers. If we say that we are Christians and yet lead unfaithful lives, then we do a disservice to what we are saying. We're we're suggesting that either the Gospel is unimportant to us or that it doesn't have the power to change us. So if we go around telling people that the Gospel is great and we don't live like it's great, then we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth. One one side of the mouth is actually our actions. We would rightly rightly have a problem if someone said these things out loud. I, I believe the Gospel, but I don't live the Gospel. We would have a problem with that, but but do we not in our lives imply these things by our lack of faithfulness? So we need to consider the connection between personal faithfulness and the attractiveness of the gospel. Thirdly, we need to look forward to the the imminent return of Christ. As we reflect on the return of Christ, it it actually charges or fuels our faithfulness. Listen to Matthew twenty four, forty five and forty six. Okay, so who is the faithful servant, Jesus says? Who is who is it? It's the one who is found working, who's found doing what he's supposed to do when the Lord returns. So if we're expectantly awaiting the return of Christ, then we will want to be found faithful in serving him. And when could Christ return? 
Imminent means at any moment. could happen at any time. So if we want to be found faithful when he returns, we need to be found faithful now. All right? Next, gentleness. Sometimes when we think of gentleness, we think of you know, fluffy pillows and bunny rabbits. But gentleness is not necessarily connected to weakness or lack of courage or lack of strength. There is a false gentleness that avoids conflicts at all costs. But it's not a biblical gentleness. John Sanderson says about such false gentleness, it is cowardly retreat from reality which substitutes a passive selfishness and only avoids trouble at the cost of allowing even greater trouble to develop. You know, we talked about this last week with regard to patience. Some people are just generally, uh, just uh, naturally, maybe a way to put it, they're naturally inclined to just let things go. They're naturally laid back. And that's not necessarily patience. The same idea is true here. Just because a person is passive doesn't mean that they're gentle. Gentleness is not a false modesty or or self-deprecation either. Um, the Bible the Bible teaches that we are all vile sinners, but Scripture also teaches that we are great in the eyes of Christ, that through Christ, the, the oneness we have in Christ, God sees us as great. We have great dignity. We have been predestined to be adopted as His sons, His children. And so we have this great standing. So just a, an idea of constant self-deprecation is not necessarily gentleness. We are sons and daughters of the living God. And that is amazing. So what is gentleness? Gentleness or meekness both have to do with the idea of great power exercised with great restraint. Great power with great restraint. And in the Old Testament, we have an example of that in Moses. Numbers 12, verse 3 says that Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. And yet, do we find in Moses a cowardly... Uh, at times, yes. But but do we find a, in him kind of a uh, a passive, selfish character? And certainly those things did show. But overall, we think of Moses as a strong man, a, a man who who worked hard for the sake of God and and uh, and was frustrated over the sins of his of God's people. Um, he he was a great leader. We think of Moses in that way, and we should. And yet he was a gentle leader in his humility. He had great power and yet he had great restraint over that power. And of course the the New Testament example of that is Jesus Christ himself who was meek. He was gentle. He was humble and he had this great power at his access and yet he he used it with great restraint. Isaiah 42:2 and 3 says he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. And then we remember him uh, as he's being taken to the cross or uh, as he's being tried before that time, First Peter 2.23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So there we, we think of, uh, I think of the song, you know, he could have called 10,000 angels, you know, and, and he, could have, he could have done whatever he wanted to bring down all the power of the universe in order to 
to protect him, and yet he was he had this great power at his disposal, but he kept it with great restraint. All right, so we see the example in Christ. How do we cultivate this? Um, I think it starts with gaining a right estimate of ourselves. And that happens as we understand Scripture properly. We have to have a right estimate of ourselves, who we really are in light of God. Think God's thoughts after Him. So what has God said about who we are? What has God said about other people with whom we relate? And then, and then um, treat, treat them as such. In Matthew 12, Jesus says that you're far more valuable than sheep. And that's encouraging. But the point is this. Our fellow humans are made in God's image, and it is for sinners just like them that Christ has given His life. And so the people that we meet each day are immensely valuable. As Christians, we can have the tendency to have this superior mindset that that we are better than all these unbelievers who haven't gotten the gospel yet. Oh, they may be better than us in other aspects of their lives with regard to their position or power or wealth, but we kind of look down on them sometimes with regard to our standing before God. And we need to see them as people... uh, people that were made in the image of God and people who just many people just like them were were died for by Christ. And so in that sense we need to recognize that yes while we have great power we are part of God's family we need to have great restraint with that power. As we understand the scriptures more we'll understand more about our responsibility for this. We we read about God and his and His uh, love for us, His purposes. We read about sinners and how uh, how they don't want to glorify God. We read about Christ and what He's given for us. And and in these things, we meditate on the fact that 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 um, Christ was meek for us. He He gave Himself so that we could so that we could have life. And part of that life means growing in this area of gentleness. All right, any questions on um, faithfulness or gentleness? All right, number five or number nine overall, self-control. Self-control is not self-effort. Self-control is not self-effort. It's not gritting our teeth and, uh, you know, just sheer willpower. We're going to get rid of this bad habit we we surely know of people who have at times tried to make changes in their lives um, via this method that I'm just going to use my own willpower to stop this thing that I I don't want to do anymore and if you're like me it probably hasn't worked on a consistent basis has it Um, biblical self-control is not merely changing or or trading a sin in for a a solution that's less than spirit-empowered. Here's an example. Someone who is a smoker may want to give that up, but is unable to do so on their own willpower, and so they exchange it for pills and patches and all sorts of other things. And really, they're still dependent on something, right? They're still dependent on, on something. It's not the Spirit of God that's working in them to control their lives. It's actually a, 
they've replaced it for some kind of a of a gimmick. John Sanderson says there is a sort of self-control that can reject a particular sinful act, but if that self-control refuses the grace of God, the result is really only trading one sin for another. And I think we live in a society that loves to cover up our sins by by treating it with all sorts of other gimmicks. Sometimes it comes in the form of medication. Sometimes it comes in the form of uh, some sort of activity. But whatever the case is, we, we don't really get rid of the sin. We only hide it with some, some, other, some other item. So what is biblical self-control? It is the ability to restrain oneself from the evil desires of the flesh for the glory of God. The ability to restrain oneself from the evil desires of the flesh for the glory of God. Restraining oneself from the evil desires of the flesh for the glory of God. Once we have been converted, we now have a new preeminent goal in life. And what is that goal? What's our primary goal in all of life? What did God make us? To glorify Him, right? And we are given His Holy Spirit which can empower us to that end successfully. And so, here's what self-control it is. is To the glory of God, we are able to restrain ourselves from the evil desires of the flesh. We don't need any gimmicks. We don't need any, any, any tricks. One example of this is the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 23, verse 5, when, um, when uh, Paul is interrogated by the Sanhedrin. And Paul says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, in a moment of weakness. And in that situation, Paul had every reason to be angry because they were treating him improperly and telling them that, that his holiness was uh, merely external, was was uh, that this high priest's holiness was an, was an, actual, an accurate way to put it. But, but someone points out to Paul that, Paul, you're talking to the high priest himself. And Paul submits himself to God's Word. He says this, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. And then, listen to this, For it is written, Do not speak evil about the rule of your people. Paul immediately has a passage of Scripture come to mind and it causes him to change in an instant when his heart has filled up with anger and he's able to quickly turn it. Do you think that can happen in an unbeliever? That they can take in a moment of anger and recall what God's purposes are in the situation and change in an instant. So, um, Paul shows his self-control even after he... he um, he probably is a little bit uncareful with his words to start with. Will someone read 1 Corinthians 9.25 or look that up? Uh, Greg, thank you. Paul talks about this kind of self-control in our lives. So how, do, how This kind of spills over into how do we develop this. But, but it's really like training for an athletic event. Athletes train themselves very rigorously, or if you think about it like these um, elite forces of the military, how they train for for their acts of service. It's not just they kind of show up the day of, of the battle. They don't show up the, the day of the event. 
They're working hard. They beat their bodies in order to make them a slave. That's what Paul's going to say here. Greg, would you read that? All right. He he later on says, you know, I box as not without aim. I have a purpose. I I run with a purpose, and I beat my body, and I make it my slave, so that I may win Christ. And so for us, um, it comes down to to understanding what God wants for us, and then disciplining ourselves to do it. So how to cultivate self-control? First, cultivate your relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, if you want to cultivate self-control, then you need to cultivate your relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you taking time to talk to God in prayer other than at church and before meals? Are you taking time to talk to God in prayer? Are you depending on Him daily by faith? Are you recognizing Christ's beauty more and more? Do you start to see why He is such a beautiful person to you? Do you have a relationship that is deepening with Him? And so the way that that happens is not by just sitting in a corner and just kind of thinking lovely thoughts about the picture of Jesus that you have in your mind, but it is reflecting on His Word. It's understanding who He is, what He's done. It's a cultivated relationship with Jesus Christ. Number two, second way to cultivate it is through regularly spending time in God's Word. Okay, these kind of go together, but... Cultivate a relationship with Christ and then regularly spend time in God's Word. It's so easy to give our time, the time of our days, to things of less lesser importance than of knowing God and His Word. And the best way that you can get a control on yourself, the greatest enemy that you have in life, is to get into the Word of God and spend great time there. We need daily reminders of what is our highest goal in life and how we get there. We need daily reminders that Christ, the Son of God, saved us to destroy the work of evil in our lives. We need daily reminders about what our sin meant to the death of Jesus Christ. And we can only do this as we fill our minds with God's Word. Spend time feeding on God's Word it will remind us that we are called to live lives that are self-controlled. As we do this, we ought to reflect on the fact that the Holy Spirit of God lives within us. The very Holy Spirit that, that, um, that inspired the words of God in the pages of Scripture is the very Holy Spirit that lives within you. And He can work in you to restrain your anger. He can work in you to to help you say no to lust and to gluttony and to anxiety and to despair. The Holy Spirit of God lives within you. All right, in closing, there are two key points that we ought to think about as we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And they seem to be two of the main points in all of Christian life. Number one, be in the Word. Did you notice that through almost all of these fruit of the Spirit that we talked about, that being in God's Word is the primary means of grace that has provided us the ability to grow in faithfulness, to grow in all of these fruits? There are no substitutes. There are no, there are no shortcut, 
there are no shortcuts. No one gets a fast pass to the front of understanding God's Word. We need to be in the Word for ourselves. No one can help you to understand or force you to understand what the Word of God says. You have to know it for yourself. When you stand before God, He's not going to ask what your pastor thinks about a situation. He's not going to ask what your parents think. He's not going to ask what your spouse thinks or what other people that you knew think. He's going to ask what you think. And how you respond will, in large part, determine your... Um, your where you will spend eternity. God, John Sanderson says this in his book about the Holy Spirit. He says, God unites men to Himself so that there is a continual flow of grace and power which produces fruit, just as sap produces fruit on a tree or a vine. Man is to trust in the Word, obey it, meditate on it, delight in it. Under these conditions, fruit is inevitable and God is pleased with it. So, back to the gardening illustration that I often use, that that we can't make the fruit grow in our lives. We can't force fruit to come out of the plant. We can't just pull it out with some kind of extractor tool. But we can cultivate fruit, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make sure that the ground is properly prepared, that it's got the proper kind of soil, the proper kind of sunlight. If you want to think of the Word of God like the sunlight, that it's got the proper amount of sunlight coming on it and rain and so on so that it's growing and that the weeds are being removed. We can't force the fruit to come up and in the end we can't take the credit for it. But what we can do is is be a part of what God is already doing in us. And then finally, we need to pray. So be in the Word and pray. This work of cultivating fruit does not happen automatically. And so we can't forget who ultimately gets the credit, that it is the fruit of the what? Of the whom, right? Spirit. So we need to forget that we can't forget that we need to go to God in prayer and ask Him, I know which areas I'm weak in, and I know which areas I need to be stronger in. So, Spirit, please help me to be more peaceful, to be more faithful, to be more self-controlled. Pray that God would regularly fill you with the Spirit, that the fruit He desires would overflow in you. Any questions or comments? All right. Next week we will conclude this class on spiritual disciplines. And um, this will be uh, a class called Perseverance and just be talking a lot more about the same sorts of things that we have talking about that we need to keep on going in the Christian life. And then we'll move on to our next class in the new year. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank You for uh, the promise that You have given us that You will produce these fruits in us. And Lord, we pray that these fruits will be abounding in us, that we would be a church that are marked by the fruit of the Spirit because we are people who pray and who reflect on and depend upon Your Word. Lord, we need Your help in this because we are constantly being pulled away from Your Word and being pulled away from prayer and we can easily make so many excuses to do neither of these. And so we pray for Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.